Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's focus for Wednesday, September the 13th, 2023 at 1124 a.m. Central Time. And your today's focus is the Christian life in a nutshell. The Christian life in a nutshell. That is your today's focus. That's what I want you to think about. I want you to focus on this concept of basically reducing the Christian life down to something very simplistic. In fact, I could ask a question. Can you reduce the Christian life down to just a few simple principles? Can you actually do that? Because a lot of times people try to accomplish this in devotional material, Bible studies, and different books. They'll try to say, look, the Christian life can seem to be overwhelming. It can seem to be complicated. It may even seem to be impossible. But if you'll learn these three principles, if you'll learn these four principles, and they try to then put Christianity, you know, they try to describe the Christian life in a nutshell. And I don't know if it's beneficial. I don't know if it's helpful, but I want you to at least consider, well, someone's attempt to say that the Christian life, in fact, their exact words is, um, here we go, that they say verse 20 of today's text has been called the Christian life in a nutshell. So they, they found one verse and they think this verse summarizes the whole Christian life in a nutshell. Well, we're going to look at that verse and we're going to try to determine that. But I, I want us to, to kind of take a step back. So the Christian life in a nutshell, that is your today's focus. But remember, so many times our pod, uh, all of the different podcasting series that we do, they kind of overlap and they're interconnected. And I, I love when that starts to take place. Remember yesterday, I gave you a little assignment, right? I told you to kind of draw out a little diagram, right? On one side of the paper, write a little, draw a little stick figure and label it you, that's you, right? On the other side of the page, draw that little stick figure you, but around it, write the words like practical righteousness, practical godliness, holiness, you know, uh, you know, those types of things describing where you want to go. Because as a Christian, you're over here on the left hand side of the page. That's you. And you want to get all the way to the other side of the page where in your life there is practical godliness. There is holiness. There is less carnality, less, uh, you know, worldliness, less uh, relying on the flesh. There, there, there is great spiritual growth that is taking place. And then the question is, well, how do you get from the left side of the page? all the way over here to the right side of the page. So I said to draw a line from the left side to the right side. And on that line, I want you to write all the different things that gets in the way of you going from the left side of the page over there to practical godliness and holiness and righteousness. And I wanted you to look at that. And I wanted to ask, what is the, like the number one contributor? What is the number one thing that will help you get past all of those obstacles all of those things in your way and get you from where you are, the left side of the page over there to practical godliness and holiness and righteousness and, you know, less carnality, less fleshliness, less, less worldliness in your life. How do you get there? Is there one thing? And we talked about that in our uh, last episode that we did in our sanctification series called Set Apart. Well, today, what we're going to do is, in a sense, think of that same diagram and now this, remember, we looked at a Bible study guide yesterday in that series, basically saying, hey, change the way you think. 
If your thinking is changed, if you if if you renew your mind, then dun dun dun, dun you'll be transformed and you'll go from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. And we looked at how confusing all of that was. Well, today I have something else telling me, hey, 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 no, 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 here's the secret. Here's the secret to the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life. The Christian life can be reduced down to a very simple concept, and it's found in verse 20 of our text. In fact, let me read from this again. Verse 20 of today's text has been called the Christian life in a nutshell. Now, before I read everything they have to say about it, we're going to look at the verse and we're going to consider, hey, is this the secret? Is this the verse that that will solve everything, okay? Now, I, I have in my hands feature a daily Bible study guide. This is the October to December issue of feature a daily Bible study guide, October to December 2023. I have it right here. It came in the mail just the other day. I think I've already done one... Um, one broadcast about it, because if you put anything in front of me, I can just take it apart and turn it into a hundred broadcasts. So I opened it up and the very first, the very first entry for October the 1st, 2023 is an overview of Galatians 2.20. And it's verse 20. It is verse 20 that they say can, has been called the Christian life in a nutshell. So let's go to Galatians chapter two. And I'm going to add to this discussion. I'm going to add, remember today's focus. My job is to try to give you one thing to focus on. That's all we try to do in this, this podcast series. The key here is not to give you, uh, you know, all the answers, but to give you something to focus on so that you have something to meditate and work on throughout the day. Now I'm going to add to this discussion because I have in my hands the anniversary edition of the 1917 edition of the Schofield Study Bible. That's what I have here because I've been using this for our study on dispensationalism, right? We've been tearing this thing apart. So simply because it's on my desk, when I saw Galatians 2.20, I opened up my Schofield Reference Bible, Study Bible, and I saw some interesting section headings that we will consider, all right? So I want to, in some ways, I want to go all the way back to Galatians chapter two and start in verse one. I think we have to. I, I know that, I know today's focus is only supposed to be 15 minutes long, but I feel like we, we, we can't just go to Galatians 2.20 as this study guide wants me to do and say, hey, this is the Christian life in a nutshell. Because I think if even if it is the Christian life in a nutshell, that quote unquote Christian life in a nutshell has to be understood by what comes before it, right? I mean, don't you agree? I, I'm, I'm going to say you agree with me. I'm going to say you agree with me. So let's start in Galatians chapter two, verse one. Here we go. Galatians chapter two, verse one. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. 
Now, remember the early church struggled with this whole concept of, okay, wait a minute, we have the law as in the Old Testament, quote unquote Judaism. Now we have the gospel, we're in Christ. Now Gentiles are coming in. Okay, what are the rules in relation to now how we operate versus those laws of the Old Testament about circumcision and these different things? And remember, there's lots of discussion about all of that. And we, I mean, there's so many issues we could bring up. So, so here there was people coming in trying to basically say, no, 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 you got to go back and follow this. You got to follow this and trying to put them back under some kind of bondage to some of these laws. All right. To try, and I'm just, this is kind of the Cliff Notes version. So just stay with me. All right. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. All right. But of those who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's, God accepteth no man's person, for they who seem to be somewhat, uh, in conference, added nothing to me. All right. Um, yes. Okay. That it's the type here in this Schofield, um, in the nineteen seventeen version. That is spelled really weird. Okay. Or it's just written really weird. Okay. It's just the the type setting here is bizarre. But okay. I was like that is somewhat, but it's S O M E W space. H A T. <laughs> it's not somewhat is not all run together. It's S O M E W space H A T. I'm like, what is that? Okay, all right, all right, here we go. So, so let me read that again. Verse six. This is Galatians chapter two. I was like, what is happening here? I know the word, all right? But of those who seem to be somewhat, now that one is actually written correctly. Uh, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrawise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same were mightily in me towards the Gentiles. All right. Again, we've got this whole issue developing here in the history of the church, Jew, Gentile, how does this all work out? The Gentiles come in, do they have to basically become Jews? And all of the the issues, obviously you would have had some serious possible prejudice and bigotry, maybe from the Jews not liking the Gentiles, the Gentiles may not liking the Jews. You had a lot of issues and cultural issues and theological issues the early church had to struggle through. All right, then... um, Verse 9, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So they decided, okay, you go to basically the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews, right? So we're going to go, in a sense, separate directions to preach the gospel to different people groups. All right, verse 10. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. All right. So everything seems to be working out pretty good. Everyone's understanding each other. They're working through some of these issues. And then Paul has an issue with Peter. 
Paul has a conflict with Peter. What is this conflict? Right? Here's what happens. Right? And he says, because he was to be blamed. For there, verse, this is verse 12, Galatians 2.12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So there, there was a time Peter would hang out with the Gentiles and eat with them. Then a certain group of people show up of the circumcision, right? Uh, Jews, you, Judaizers, however you want to reference this group. But there's just say a group of people who are Jewish. He's like, oh, I don't, he, he's afraid of what they may think. He's afraid of him, them seeing him hanging out and eating with Gentiles. It would be like, how dare you do that? So he withdraws himself and stops hanging out with the Gentiles. You can see some of these problems that would have been present in the early church, right? Verse 13, and the other Jews, this is Galatians 2, 13, and the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, and so much that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. All right, so now everyone starts like, okay, well, then none of us are going to hang out with the Gentiles. People start getting pulled away. This is peer pressure, and it's just amazing. Even in the early church, even amongst those who are spiritual leaders, even amongst those who are apostles, are getting carried away basically because of peer pressure, because of cultural expectations. Hey, 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 we don't eat with Gentiles. We don't do that. Okay, well, hey, none of those people are around. I'll hang out with you. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, here comes all of uh, my Jewish counterparts. Can't hang out with you guys anymore. Caving into peer pressure. It's hard. Sometimes we, we take some of these biblical characters and we set them on a pedestal. They were human beings just like we are with their weakness. They were fleshly. They, they were sinful, right? They were ungodly just like we are. And here we are. They're caving to mere peer pressure, cultural expectations. They're following the culture. They're not being counterculture. They're like, oh, well, in our culture, we don't hang out with Gentiles. They're, they're, they're maybe going back to Old Testament concepts that they should be moving past. It's kind of fascinating to see, right? Verse 14, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, so he, he's going to confront Peter before everyone. If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, who compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? All right. So let me read that again. He said unto them, all right, this is before them all. If thou being a Jew liveth after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He's confronting the way they're treating these people, the way they're trying to make this work. He's confronting the whole thing. And he says, and he believes this is a direct attack upon the gospel. He's believing that this, this, is, this whole thing is wrong. This whole thing is, is going to be confusing and it's going to hurt. Now, look, now, this is what Schofield does. He then has a heading. Justification is by faith without law. 
Now, remember, verse 20 is where this study guide says this reduces the Christian. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. So we're going to get to there. But we're, we're so now we're getting close. All right. So we have this issue going on. Now, we could break that issue down in great, far greater detail. We could explain it more. At least you've got a basic, basic idea of what's going on. Schofield then inserts at this point, justification is by faith without the law. Now, this is important. He inserts this heading here because he believes now the text is going to transition. You see, they're, they're, they're having these issues between Jew and Gentile. They have this issue of some people wanting the Gentiles to either go back under the law or you just completely separate yourself from them. Okay, you got you got some issues developing here. And then Schofield at least steps in and goes, wait, wait, wait. Justification is by faith without the law, meaning, hey, we are justified without the keeping of that law. We don't have to keep that law in order to be justified. Right. Then underneath that. Here's what he says. All right, here we go. This is the point he makes there. Are you ready? Here we go. Even Jews must be so justified. All right, he says, even Jews must be so justified. Now, here we go. Verses 15 through 19 now of Galatians 2 is going to lay the immediate context for verse 20, which the study guide says is the Christian life in a nutshell. So before we get to verse 20, let's walk through this slowly. All right, here we go. Verse 15. We who are Jews by nature, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. All right. Laying. Hey, look. Why would you, basically, if you're a Jew, why would you then try to return back to the Old Testament law? Why would you return back to this? You're not justified by that. And why would we try to get Gentiles to be put back into bondage to this law? Because they're not justified by that. No one is justified by the law, but it is by faith. Right? Laying a very important principle down. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. All right. For I, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. All right. For now, then the next Schofield then jumps in here and puts another little heading. The law has already executed its sentence upon the believer. Verse 19, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. All right. So Schofield makes kind of this point that, hey, under the law, you're found guilty. Therefore, you're dead. You are, in a sense, executed. You are, you're guilty in it. And that, that's true. The law condemns us. Now, here comes, then, then he adds another heading here. Now, here we go. The Christian life is the outliving of the in-living Christ. Now, there's a lot here we could work on. Remember, I'm just trying to get us a, a basic understanding of the context. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to exegete this in great detail right now, right? Just trying to give us today's focus. My job is to try to give you something to focus on, all right? There's a lot here we could work on. But all of a sudden, Schofield jumps in at this point, all right? And he says, the Christian life is the outliving of the in-living Christ. And now let's stop right here. Remember yesterday, okay? 
Remember the broadcast. I told you to draw that little diagram on the far left-hand side of the page. Draw a little stick figure. Mark it as you. On the far right side of the page, a little stick figure, you, and write around that little stick figure words like, you know, practical righteousness, practical godliness, practical holiness, right? Because uh, because in your Christian life, you want to get from the left side of the page all the way over there to where your life is demonstrating and experiencing practical righteousness and holiness and spiritual growth. Then I told you to draw a line across, and then on that line, write all the things that stand as ob- obstacles between you over here on the left side of the page getting to the right side of the page. And then I said, is there one key thing that allows you to overcome these obstacles to get to this experience of practical godliness and holiness, right? We talked about that in depth, and I mentioned it in my introduction. So yesterday, we looked at one study guide that tried to provide us an answer. So for today's focus... I want you to write this, this, this sentence down again, because now Schofield steps in and he, and, and this other study guide that I have here, they all think verse 20 is the answer to it, to it all. And Schofield, in a sense, summarizes what he believes the answer is. Here's what he believes the answer is. You ready? The Christian life is the outliving of the in living Christ. The Christian life is the outliving of the in-living Christ. Now that preaches good. That sounds good. You could write that down. The Christian life is the outliving of the in-living Christ. Seemingly to imply that because you are a Christian now, then Christ indwells you. He lives inside of you. And now the Christian life is simply the in-living Christ or the outliving of the in-living Christ. Now, this should raise some important questions. Well, wait a minute. If the Christian life now is simply the outliving of the in-living Christ, if it's just Christ is in me and now it's the outliving of the in-living Christ, can I get to sinlessness? Can I get to perfection? Can I get to true holiness? Can I get to true righteousness? And we know the overwhelming answer would have to be to anyone who's even reasonably honest with the Christian life is you cannot. You're going to fall short. You're going to fall short. You're going to fall short. So then even if the Christian life is the outliving of the unliving Christ, we do know there's a limit to it. You're not going to get to perfection. You're not going to get to sinlessness. And if you're even remotely honest with your life compared to the law of God, you're going to see that you continue to fall short. So is is that the Christian life in a nutshell? And what does that even mean? It preaches good, but what does it even mean in a practical way? And how does that work? The Christian life is the outliving of the unliving Christ. All right. So what do I do? I don't have to do anything. It's the unliving. I just, I just, it's the outliving of the unliving Christ. It's just going to naturally occur. It's just going to naturally be there. Well, Christians still have a sinful nature. So does the outliving of the unliving Christ overcome the sinful nature? Why do Christians continue to sin in thought, word, and deed, and their desires, and their feelings, and their emotions, and their actions? It, it sounds good, but I, I, I don't know how, I don't know exactly what it means. So now let's read the verse, all of that to get us to the final verse. Tw- 23 minutes simply to get us down to the verse. And I, look, uh, I want you to, you can read Galatians 2 and spend some more time in it today. This is your today's focus. Verse 20 is really supposedly the key. Here's what verse 20 says. Here we go. Here we go. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And everyone's like, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. This, it's so simple. It's so simple. Come on. And everyone says amen to this. And like, okay, I got it. Now, how do you understand this verse? I'm going to ask you this. Now, remember, I believe strongly in that we have to draw as Christians a clear distinction between the positional reality of the Christian life and the practical reality. The positional reality is my standing before God because I am saved by faith alone and of an imputed righteousness alone. Not an infused righteousness, but an imputed righteousness. We talk about this all the time. This is the key issue of the Protestant Reformation. Catholicism, you, you, in their understanding, you receive an infused righteousness, where as non-Catholics, we claim to believe in an imputed righteousness. But if you listen to people talk about justification and sanctification, they clearly seem to believe in an infused righteousness. Okay. But that, if they want to destroy the entire Protestant Reformation, I can't help that. But all I can do is try my best to challenge this. So whenever we think of the Christian life, we have to draw a distinction between our position and our practical standing positionally, I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. That is not even remotely true practically. Practically, I still have a sinful nature, a sin, sinful flesh, and I'm going to sin, sin, sin. I, I, everything is not new. Positionally, it is, not practically. So when I read Galatians 2.20, is this speaking of a positional reality or is it speaking of a practical reality? Many try to say that this is focused on the practical reality. And I think this becomes problematic. So let's read it again. I am crucified with Christ. That is true positionally. Positionally, I was in, I am in Christ and positionally he died. I'm dead. I am truly dead in Christ. The old me is completely dead. He was buried. I was buried with him. And then he rose the third day. I rose with him. But that is all true of my positional reality. Positionally, the old me is dead. I am now a new person. The old is crucified. And I stand before God as a new person. All my sin has been paid for. I am holy. I am righteous. That is a positional reality. That is not a practical reality. That is not a practical reality. Because in the, in the practice, self is very much alive. Sin is very much alive. Positionally, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, I'm alive, but I still think this is refer referencing my positional standing. I live, but not me. It's no longer me. It's Christ that's in me. My entire standing before God, my positional standing is that I no longer exist. It's Christ. You say, well, Christ lives in you practically. If he lives in me practically, right? Let's, we'll just put this as a hypothetical. We'll put it as a hypothetical concept. If he lives in me practically, Clearly, we know, one, it still doesn't get us to sinless perfection. So there's a limit to whatever he's supposedly doing in me. So if he's in me, 
Is he in me in such a way that overcomes my sinful nature? Well, not completely because I'm still going to sin. Or is he in me via the person of the Holy Spirit? And that is simply to seal me and to be basically a down payment for my future ultimate redemption. We always want to see, seek some kind of power. We want to seek some kind of something supernatural going on inside of me. The only problem is we have to place a limit on it because nobody can get to sinlessness and nobody can get to perfection. But he says, okay, go, let's continue. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life, which I now live in the flesh. Now here's the part like, okay, wait a minute here. Here's the practical part. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here is how I think it works. I live in the flesh, but as I live in the flesh, the reality is I am living in the flesh, but the positional reality is what ultimately determines everything. In In other words, I live in the flesh... But I, but I do so by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm living in the flesh, but I'm living in the flesh by faith in Christ. That as I live in the flesh, I fall, I sin, I struggle. I do never forget the positional reality that I am crucified and that I'm dead. And life, I I demonstrate that I'm not truly crucified practically because I'm going to continue to sin. So I have to live by faith. By faith, as I live my life in the flesh... I live by faith knowing that there is a different reality beyond what I can see. Right? Faith is the hope, the evidence of what cannot be seen, right? So I live my life by the faith in Jesus Christ that positionally, here's what I know. In my flesh, I live and I struggle and I sin and I fall and all of the issues that we all know we live, we go through. But by faith, as I'm living out my life, I'm living my life out knowing that in Christ, I am, I'm crucified and that I'm living my life in Christ by him, his righteousness, his holiness. And I can only see that by faith. Then verse 21 says, now again, Schofield jumps in. He says to mingle law works with grace and justification frustrates grace. And then he goes on to say, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, immediately that tells me righteousness does not come by the law. Right, because righteousness never is obtained by the law. The law was never meant to give us a list of things to do so that we could obtain righteousness. The law was always given there to show us our unrighteousness and condemn us. So then how do I live by my life? I live my life by faith in Christ, knowing then I am declared to be perfectly righteous. My righteousness is an imputed righteousness that does not come from what I do. I'm living my life in the flesh, but my focus is on the faith of Christ, which gives me the righteousness, the holiness, and the obedience to the law, which I can never obtain, no matter how many efforts I try. So if you reduce this as the Christian life in a nutshell, the Christian life in a nutshell then is as you live this life, you do so by faith in the reality of your positional standing, not based off the reality of your practical experience. As a Christian, it's not my practical experience. I put my faith in my positional standing, which is radically different than my practical experience. 
That's the only way I can make sense of this. Meaning, I'm over here on the left-hand side of the page, as we talked about yesterday, and I want to get to the right side. Well, I'm going to guess what I'm going to experience as I'm trying to go from one side of the page to the other. Sin and failure, and I'm going to be constantly bombarded with all of these obstacles. What I have to do as I'm walking and facing and experiencing these obstacles is maintain a faith in the positional reality that I am crucified in Christ and that I no longer live, but Christ liveth in me. That I, I never forget that reality, no matter the experience that I'm encountering. Now, I'm not saying that helps me overcome those obstacles, but it keeps me moving whenever I fall in those obstacles because I can know this is what I'm experiencing and it is wrong and it is sinful, but it is not the whole story because the real story is my positional standing. Now, how does the study guide handle this? Do they approach it in a similar way or in a very different way? Well, we'll read this quickly and try to wrap this up. Here we go. This is what they say. Verse 20 of today's text has been called the Christian life in a nutshell. Notice the following about this fascinating and vitally important verse. Number one, they say it is bursting with life. Five times we find the word live or life. Christ is living in me. Now, whenever we say Christ is living in me, this is where the debate rages within Christianity. What does that practically mean? Many people say, well, because Christ is living in me, Schofield even did so. The Christian life is the outliving of the unliving Christ. Well, that sounds so good. Christ is living in me. And now all I do is the outliving of the, uh, of the indwelling Christ. Okay. Well, that's great. That sounds good. The inliving Christ. What does that mean? How does that work? Well, I, 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 you can sit there and argue with me all day. I would always reduce the argument to this. Can it get me to sinless perfection? No, it cannot. Can it get me to holiness? No, it cannot. So I'm going to still be living in sin, 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 sin. So then what, what does it mean that Christ lives in me? I think, Christ, I think the Holy Spirit indwelling in me is simply there to signify his ownership of me. That he's in me. I was bought with a price. I now belong to him. But practically, the sinful nature is still there and I'm going to fall. Meaning, though, that's a guarantee that positionally I am completely his and that ultimately in glorification, I will be redeemed and the sinful nature will be gone. All right. But okay. So that's the first point they want to make. Number two. This verse is full of Christ. You cannot have more a more Christ-centered verse. He is mentioned repeatedly. Christ is my life. The life I now live is centered in him. The life I now live is by the faith in him. Now that is true. It is to be a Christ-centric life, right? Like my, when I'm living my life, I have to realize my experience is going to be self, 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 sin, 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 sin. That is your experience and my experience. Our lives are filled with self and sin. But by faith, I can see that in my position, it's self is dead. Self has been crucified and it's all about Christ. right? Number three, this verse is very personal. The personal pronouns I and me are in this short verse eight times. 
Since the truth of the verse 20 applies to every believer, then those pronouns apply to each one of us just as much as they apply to the Apostle Paul. It's helpful to read this verse putting one's own name in place of those pronouns. I'm not a big fan of doing that. I say you read the text as it is written. You don't add to it. But okay, it's applicable. I think it's applicable to my positional standing, not my practical, but okay. Verse four, this verse contains no commands. We might think that if this verse is about the Christian life, then it would tell us how we are supposed to live and certain things we are to do. But interestingly, it does not. Galatians 2.20 gives no commands to obey, only facts to believe. It does not give me orders to follow, but rather it gives me truths that I am to count as true. Now that we can agree on. And Galatians 2.20, if this is the Christian life in a nutshell, there are no commands. It is gospel-centric because it's all about reality, things that have been done for us by faith. I, I, I do agree with that. Then number five they have here, right? This verse indicates that the cross of Christ is central to the Christian life. Jesus was crucified and I with him. This is the doctrine of co-crucifixion. That's what they refer to this as, the doctrine of co-crucifixion. I have been identified with Christ in his death and also in his resurrection, crucified, yet I live. Now, again, I believe this this demands, this is about a positional reality. Let me read it to you again, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this is all about a positional reality. The positional reality is positionally, not practically. Positionally, it's I have been crucified with Christ. End of story. I have died and I have been resurrected. That is my positional standing. My positional standing is I'm a new creature. The old is gone. All is new. Practically, self is very much alive. Practically, I'm not a new creature. Practically, not not all things have become new and clearly the old is not gone because practically I still have a sinful nature. I still sin. Self is still very much alive. This is speaking of a positional reality. And now how do I live my life? I now live in the flesh and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the son of God. The life I now live, I live basically in light of the positional reality. The practical reality remains the same. I'm a sinner. What we want to do is take this verse and usually, now I'm not saying they're doing this in the study guide, but many take this verse and try to say, hey, practically, you basically shouldn't sin because you're dead. You've been crucified and now Christ lives in you and gives you the power. The only problem is we know we're still going to sin. So you have to start living yourself. You have to start living in denial. You have to start pretending to be something that you're not. You have to start claiming some kind of righteousness that you do not possess. The practical life is lived by the faith and the positional reality. There's no other way to make this make any sense. 
And then verse six says, this verse shows that faith is the essential key to Christian living. I live by the faith of the son of God. The Christian life is, is to continue the same way it was commenced. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now that is true. The whole Christian life is to be lived by faith, but it is faith in the positional reality that, look, if I look at my life, it's self-driven, it's self-centered, and it's sinful. There's no way to get around it. It is self-centered and sinful because if you take the law of God and lay your life next to the law of God, you will realize you fall short, you fall short, you fall short, you fall short. Even your good works require God's forgiveness because even your good works are tainted. So if I walk by sight, I will be like, I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I clearly I'm not saved. I give up. I'm doomed. I'm going to go to hell. If you're even remotely honest with yourself, if you look at your life by sight, but I don't walk by sight. I walk by faith and by faith. Guess what I see? I'm crucified. The old me is dead. I've been resurrected. I'm alive. I am holy. I am righteous. I am obedient. I am perfect. All because of an imputed righteousness that I obtained by faith alone. And I continue to walk by faith in this life. Acknowledging the reality of my failure, but clinging to the truth of my position. That is the only way this makes sense. So if this is the Christian life, In a nutshell, if Galatians 2.20 is, as some refer to it as, then the Christian life is this, a positional reality that I must walk my practical life daily, holding on to faith of that positional reality. The Christian life, in a nutshell, is a positional reality that I must cling to and have faith in At the same time, I live out a practical reality that is completely contradictory to that positional truth. That positional truth is not, is completely contradictory to the practical reality of your life and my life. That positional reality is completely contradictory to the life you live and to the, and and to what's going on internally and externally. If I was to rewrite Schofield's note, the Christian life is the outliving of the in-living Christ. I would be like the Christian life is the faith and the positional reality of what I am in Christ, even though my practical life is completely contradictory to that positional reality. Now, I know that was a long journey to get there, but I want you to think long and hard today for your today's focus on Galatians 2.20. Now, I know in some ways we could have put this in our series on sanctification because it's very much related to it, but I wanted to separate it out, right? I wanted to separate it out a little bit just to give you something to focus on. If you haven't listened to our series on set apart, you should, uh, because we're really trying to take apart the... Uh, doctrine of sanctification in light of a proper distinction between law and gospel. So you want to listen to our series on law and gospel. Yeah, there's so many different things, but all of this overlaps and it's interconnected. And that's what I love when this kind of falls into place. But today I want you to just look at Galatians 2, 1 through 20, 
right, go, go Galatians 2, 1 through 21. That is your today's focus. And I want you to look at verse 20 and, and ask yourself, if this reduces the Christian life, if this, if this is the Christian life in a nutshell, then what is this key principle in Galatians 2, 20? What is the key, key principle? I think the key principle is the positional reality that I must have faith in in light of a practical reality that contradicts it. Your practical reality contradicts the positional reality. And this is a key thing that Christians constantly forget. We are saved by an imputed righteousness. That does not change us. That changes my standing. I'm still a sinner because it's imputed. And that's why I think it's ridiculous when Christians come along and go, no, 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 no. I'm going to judge your salvation based off what you do or don't do. Because what you do or don't do proves your salvation. How can what I do or don't do prove my salvation? Because my salvation is based off an imputed righteousness. Practical action cannot prove imputed righteousness. So then I would say, if you say you have to do these things in order to prove that you're saved, well, then guess what? My positional standing, that imputed righteousness, fulfills all of those rules you think I have to do to prove that I'm saved. Because my salvation is based off what Christ did for me. His passive and active obedience is imputed to me. I think the, the, the modern church has completely forgotten the doctrine of imputation. Or we say we believe it and then we contradict ourselves. Hey, you're saved by an imputed righteousness. But, but, but wait, 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 wait. You better do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because if you don't, you prove you were never saved. Wait a minute. I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. If I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, A, B, C, D, E, that you're saying I have to do to prove that I'm saved, was done by Christ for me. And he paid for, he died for me, my failure in not doing your list of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or ever how many letters you want to put, how many points you want to put on your test, how many questions you you want to put on your test, or how many challenges. Galatians 2.20. I'm going to read it one more time. I'm crucified with Christ, positional reality. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That is a positional reality. That's a pos- I'm, I'm alive now, and it's, it's, it's about Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, now here's the practical part, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself more. I live the practical experience in faith of the positional reality. All right. Many are going to disagree strongly with that. And that's okay. All right. You can email me. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That is newsif at yahoo.com. And that is your today's focus for Wednesday, September the 13th, 2023.